But I think until and unless we get to the stage where it's mandatory and we're really on the right trajectories to go further faster, we won't be making the progress that we need to be making in order to address the scale of the challenge. Hello and welcome to The Forecast, the podcast exploring the critical issues of the day shaping the future of our cities, our buildings, and the spaces between, informed by our lens of sustainability and social impact in the built environment. I'm Basil Demarudis, managing partner of Four Partnership, and I'll be asking the difficult questions and hopefully finding some answers about what our industry needs to do to ensure a sustainable future. Each episode, I'll be joined by prominent thought leaders from not only the world of real estate, but those from technology, culture, arts, philosophy, and education. I'll be talking to the people who are shaping our cities and redefining the role the built environment plays in our society. Through these conversations, I hope you'll enjoy some bite-sized insights into the urgent issues around ESG and the built environment and get to know some fascinating people along the way. Well, today I'm really delighted to be welcoming Julie Hiragoyen, Chief Executive of the UK Green Building Council, to the podcast. Julie has been at the helm of the UK GBC for almost eight years. The UK GBC is a leading NGO campaigning for environmental causes and championing the sustainability movement within the built environment. She's been at the forefront of sustainability for nearly two decades, not only in her role at the UK GBC, but Julie, you were previously chair of the British Property Foundation Sustainability Committee and had a long and successful career at JLL as well before that. Welcome. Thank you very much, Basil. It's a pleasure to be here. So, uh, kicking off, Julie, first I've, I've got to say congratulations. You've recently decided to um, step down from the uh, CEO of the UK GBC uh, in about a year's time in 2023. Congratulations on such a, an impressive and significant uh, tenure. I think over that, over that period of time, you've overseen incredible change in the built environment. And we've seen, as an industry, really sustainability move from being a secondary consideration to really probably a key driver for the for the industry, um, not least of all because of the, the pandemic, which has served to, to hasten the, the, the transition to a low carbon economy. So what, what, what do you see over that time period? What's the state of the union? What, um, where are we? Sure. Um, and you're, you're quite right. There's been an awful lot of change over that eight years. Um, I, I, I'd say I've seen more change in the last two years than I've seen in the previous 23, to be honest. Um, When I say that, I mean it largely at the level of awareness of the scale of the problem and and, and a willingness to do something about it. So um, that point about sustainability going mainstream, you know, we've seen a huge growth in our membership. So um, even in the last couple of years, we've doubled in in size of members. Um, We're now over 700. A lot of those are businesses. Um, So they really get the fact that they need to do something and they're, they're, you know, they're becoming members because they want to learn more and exchange knowledge and all of these things. That said, I think it's fair to say that we are not seeing um, substantial difference in terms of the scale of the impact of the built environment sector. Um, It's really hard to quantify that. We've tried a couple of times. We did a a study a few years back called the state of sustainability um, and we pulled out lots of different stats and facts across the different impact areas um, there were proxies um, but it, it's it's hard to quantify but I, I'd say we're still far from being where we need to be and um, you know even just the work that we've done on on carbon and the, the whole life carbon roadmap that we published last year at COP26 you know we, we, we've plateaued pretty much 
um, and, and we're not getting that much better. Now, on carbon, we have got better because the uh, grid has electrified, has um, the grid has the grid has become more renewable. So we have lost some carbon in the system, but efficiency and energy efficiency in particular has not improved. Um, so I think we're still at the stage where the sector is, you know, focused on doing less bad and. Um, not fixing problems per se, but still reducing the problems that it causes. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and also it's largely still voluntary, right? It's not mandatory. So um, we, it's more vulnerable to market conditions, which we're seeing um, at the moment. So I, so I think until and unless we get to the stage where it's mandatory and we're really on the right trajectories to, um, to go further faster, um, we won't be making the progress that we need to be making in order to, to address the scale of the challenge. I think that's um, you know you touch on a great great point. Although the industry has made strides and uh, and, and we decarbonized the built environment in many ways, we're still only touching the sides of the of the problem. We have this famous um, IPCC emissions gap report that came out uh, not too long ago, which talked about the if, even if we took in all the measures that we've adopted as a society and and all of the um, commitments that. Countries have made. We're still only going to have, uh, we're going to have a 2.7 degree warming by the end of the century, whereas we really need to be targeting that that 1.5 uh, degree warming. And we have this famous also carbon budget of 400 gigatons of budget that we have to spend in terms of carbon, of which we've spent a good chunk of that already. 40 gigatons, 30 to 40 gigatons of carbon a year that we're putting into the into the atmosphere. And so, in some ways, if you look globally. I think we would recognize that actually in some, we're moving in the wrong direction. We're roughly about 8% higher in terms of absolute levels of carbon um, today than we were 10 years ago, and yet we need to be 6 or 7% per year reduction in order to hit our 2030 targets. So how should we feel optimistic with that rather bleak summary? Sure. Yeah, no, it's, well, it's a perpetual question for us um, working in this space. Um, it's actually something that I spend a lot of time um, working through with my team. And I know lots of other sustainability professionals do the same in terms of resilience and just um, retaining that sense of hope when actually the news agenda all around us is, particularly even in this country at the moment, is, is really quite challenging. So I think, I mean, I draw my hope from three places, really. Um, you know, the, the scale and uh, acceleration of commitment from uh, non-state actors in the face of I, what I would say is, is public sector, um, you know, lack of leadership uh, from governments and, and, and so on. There is this inexorable shift where non-state actors such as businesses, universities, you know, um, uh, industry bodies, uh, financiers, etc., are backing the uh, net zero carbon horse. And a really good proxy for that is the signatories to the Race to Zero, um, which are exponentially increasing. You know, it's doubled. I think that the signatories have doubled just since COP26. Yeah, tell us a little bit more about the Race to Zero, actually, because I think that's a really innovative and, yeah. and interesting campaign. Because I think we have this a, a bit of problem in our industry, don't we? This atomization of standards. Yeah. And in some ways, I think, if I've got it right, the UN Race to Zero is trying to, to pull everything together. Have yeah, got, it is. It's right? not, not an easy job, um, but it's a, it, you're quite right. It's an umbrella campaign. So it's made up of or it's 
uh, is a wrapper for lots and lots of other commitments. These are these are organisation wide commitments. They're not sort of building level. They're they're at the level of the company or the university or, or what have you, and they are commitments by those entities that they will halve their emissions by 2030 and achieve net zero carbon ahead of 2050, if at all possible. Um, there are lots of you know, contributing partner initiatives. You could look at um, science-based targets initiative, business ambition to 1.5 degrees. Um, you know, there's a, a, a climate hub for SMEs. There's, there's a multitude of them and growing, um, but all of them share that scale of, of, of commitment. So I think it is really helpful because you, you sort of, you know, they're very credible, very rigorous, there's a uh, very comprehensive advisory group that's uh, um, made up of international experts that's feeding into it. And so we, we know that those signatories that have signed up to a, you know, one of the member partner initiatives um, is is actually making a really substantial commitment. And, that, and those are meaningful and they are comparable um, and so on. So we've chosen as UKGBC, we were the first Race to Zero um, accelerator. Um, which means that we encourage our members to join the race. We use it as our, one of our advocacy tools and um, and we support them both before signing in terms of signing up and and, uh, uh, and of course, once they've made the commitment, the real action starts. So that's really important as well. And so they can share lessons learned and, and so on through, through UKGBC. Um, we are uh, now at the stage with our 700 members where 25% of our members are in the race to zero. And we last year made it a membership requirement for our Gold Leaf members, which are the, those that aspire to sustainability leadership. So we're slowly sort of nudging and r- ramping up the, the sort of um, expectation, I suppose, is fair to say, that our members will make such ambitious commitments. And, and you know, that's how we know we can support them. And uh, it's really important that they can share, that they have that in common. That's brilliant. I think that's, a, that's an incredible initiative. And I think when when you look at the UKGBC as an organization, you talk about the 700 or so members you have. It's important to remember this kind of multiplier effect that you have, don't you? Because yep. within those organizations, I think I read somewhere, if I've got it right, there's something like 100,000 employees. All of those employees have friends, they have families, yep. they have children that they go sit across the dinner table with who are holding them to account uh, yep. in, the, in the evenings. Do you feel like you have this sort of multiplier role to play and and Talk a little bit about your yeah. your future leaders program as well, and how do we, as an industry, go out and make sure that we're not just uh, talking to those who are already convinced that this is the right thing yeah. to do. No, that's a really good point. In fact, I, I, we haven't been able to add the number up, but I think it would probably come to more than a hundred thousand. You know, we've got um, companies like JLL. I've got fifty thousand people worldwide. So you know, I'm sure it'd be in the millions if we were able to get those numbers. So it is a huge responsibility and a huge opportunity. I'll give you one practical example, um, which is really pertinent today. So uh, last week, the government launched a call for evidence around the net zero review, which is being led by Chris Skidmore, MP. Um, And we immediately jumped onto that and thought, right, well, we need to mobilise a response with input from all of our members. Um, The review is very much positioned as a how does net zero carbon contribute to 2.5% growth in the economy? So it's quite short-termist in terms of uh, you know immediate growth focus, which means um, it's actually quite difficult to prove that, that, that causal link. But there's lots and lots of good stuff that we can pull together, and we will. And so we've immediately gone out to all our members, but we're also calling on our members to call on all their staff to submit individual responses as well, because the weight of 
the volume of responses that they receive to the review will be as important as the really kind of tangible content in some of the responses that are, um, you know, more comprehensive. So that's a really good example of how we can leverage uh, the scale of the of the network um, to go out to, to more and, and make the numbers start to count. One of my favourite examples it was November 2019. And uh, it was the year that Greta Thunberg started the global school strikes on a Friday. And there was a call for all professionals to join the children on that particular day of uh, of the strike. So it was a sort of global climate strike. Um, And we called on all our members to join us. We've not done this before, so I was slightly expecting my P45, um, but I didn't (laughs) receive it. And we called on all our members to come and join us outside the building centre and really, you know, march down towards Westminster in with real estate as a kind of really strong voice of change and calling for a stronger climate policy. And we were absolutely overwhelmed by the number of people that joined. And these were individual staff members from member organisations. We, we had about 400 people gather outside the building centre, um, making placards from early morning. It was, it was a lovely moment because a lot of them had brought their children and their dogs and their you know friends. And it was it was a real interface between the employer, the employee, and the employees, family, friends, and, and just how quickly that multiplies. So I think this, you know, th- these issues are very, very personal. There's no doubt about it. And so getting to the level of the individual is really important. Um, you mentioned our Future Leaders Programme. We do a lot of work on leadership at UKGBC, um, both with future leaders, so they're emerging talent, um, at y- you know, young professionals, and with sort of change, what we call our change accelerator program is aimed at middle managers, so the people who've been doing this for a while, they could be responsible for any kind of change in an organisation, um, but they need a bit of a turbo boost. And then with executives and CEOs um, as well. And, you know, they're typically sort of 15 to 30 people on, on each programme. So it's a lot of work to reach relatively few people, but it's it's genuinely groundbreaking work. I mean, they have deep moments of reflection and it's about connecting at, at the level of the heart rather than just the mind. And I, I'm a strong believer that, you know, in order to achieve behaviour change, we need to feel differently about the issue and then we'll do something different. We'll act differently. But if we're just thinking about acting differently, we just end up not doing it. So it's a, it's a really important part of our theory of change is to is to change mindsets and how people feel about, about the topics. Yeah, it's an incredibly powerful part of your mission because, of course, I think we would both recognize that it's one thing for a company to make a commitment. Um, you know, it's a, it, it may end up being a placebo, frankly, just good enough for them to, to stay out of jail and not get fined. And they write their famous annual letters from the back of their Gulfstream G650 over the over the Atlantic, sipping on champagne and eating caviar. But it's quite another thing to mobilize the tens or hundreds of thousands of people within these organizations to to act. Yeah. So do you think we reach a a tipping point just organizationally, or when you've seen it within your your experience within JLL, or just talking to your 700? member organizations. I mean, you have the most amazing perch to to see what's happening with with the corporate world and and where this tipping point may or may not be and how far away we are. So I'll come back to what I suppose I said at the beginning that I think that we have definitely reached a tipping point when it comes to awareness of the why, that the, the, you know, the scale and speed of the change that's needed. Uh, certainly on carbon and climate change, that's true. But we're also now seeing it across lots of other topics as well. And the societal issues currently are obviously 
really high on the agenda. So um, I think the awareness of the of the why, and that means that there's less need for us to constantly try to gather evidence of the business case, you know, which was very much the place that the industry was at when I started at UKGBC eight years ago. Um, what's now really urgent is greater understanding of the how and the what. So those, uh, I think from a carbon point of view, are starting to be better understood. So I'll give you a couple of examples. I mentioned we launched our whole life carbon roadmap for the built environment sector last year at COP26. And that was really a a footprint of where the, the carbon emitted from the built environment sector across all its guys, all its life cycle, where is the bulk of the carbon? And then projecting forward to 2050, what would need to be done to really take out each bit, you know, operational carbon from homes, um, embodied carbon from new construction, et cetera, et cetera, to, to a point where it's really credible and there's very little left. And actually what's left by then is largely embodied. Um, we need to wipe out the operational. That's almost a sort of playbook of A, it says it's doable and B, it tells us what we need to do in order to take take out the carbon. So that's that's what I mean by the how. Um, from a policy point of view, that's now become our sort of our absolute backbone of of the advocacy work that we do because it tells us exactly where the gaps are. But then another example at the level more of an individual asset is the work that's currently underway to develop a net zero carbon buildings standard. And as yet, we don't have a very specific definition. We've developed a framework definition, which is being widely used across the industry in terms of what does net zero carbon mean for new construction or for building and operation. And that's great. But we need to go one step further and say, unless you achieve embodied carbon targets of X for a new home and operational energy use intensity targets of Y, you can't genuinely claim to be net zero carbon, even if you've offset all of the carbon, because you've got to get to that absolute reduction point before you offset uh, in order to be genuinely credible. So those sorts of initiatives will get us to a place where we do understand the what and the how, because we know what we need to achieve. And um, they're really, really crucial for that. That's just carbon. And that's just buildings. Uh, we need to do that across you know, circular economy, resource efficiency, nature, biodiversity, resilience and adaptation, social value. You know, we need common definitions. And for on the social issues, it's much, much harder, of course, to quantify. So with carbon, at least there's a scientific methodology and calculation. There's some debates around how you do that, but um, I won't get into that. But but with social, it's we're talking much more qualitative. I and mean, you've got to go out and talk to people and see how they feel, right? So th- this stuff is complicated. I think we've come a long, long way, but there's just we've got to get more consistency, alignment, um, and, uh, and, and, and really clear definitions of what is good enough before we achieve the, the, the goal. And I, and I think, but to your point, in the um, in the widest sense of the problem, we've got to convince the entire population to get across the finish line, not just some subset of Guardian readers who exist in a in an echo bubble. Yep. Um, I used to be an FT reader, by the way. Now I'm a Guardian reader, so I'd be <laughs> very, very pleased. But to do that, we need to simplify it because it is yeah. awfully complicated. Just even hearing you talk about it, and I know the insights of what's happening with the net zero carbon standard, which is so important. Yeah. And uh, and really, I think critical to distill it down into a way, in a sentence, you can explain it to every person on every street and get them to join in uh, yeah. the behavioral change, the what's and the hows that I think that you that you articulated so well that we really need to to get to. Yeah. Within that context, though, we also are facing a bit of backlash. Where I think we should 
be you know clear to highlight not only from corporates who are maybe finding it a bit more difficult, but uh, in government, the the kind of the other side's getting a lot better organized than they were perhaps you know, yeah. eight years ago when you first set out on this journey with UKGBC. How do you feel about the current state of play there? The current state of play in government is not good for this agenda. Let's honest, start with the really. <laughs> With the really basic stuff. I had a coffee this morning with Jonathan Poet, who's the founder of the NGO Forum for the Future. And uh, we were talking about the fact that as environmental organisations and professionals, we need to shift our attention in this current space from influencing what's coming up the line, what's coming next in terms of policy to protecting what we've already got. So there's this enormous mobilisation of the environmental groups um, in defiance and in attack, I suppose, to being under attack by um, by the current administration. And I think that will probably be quite helpful, actually, because it just shows the scale and volume of the number of voices that are really campaigning for this stuff. Um, so just to put that in context, you know, we're seeing a commitment to deregulate, but um, to, to sort of reverse out all of the EU regulations around nature and nature protection and biodiversity and, and so on. We're seeing a, a focus on growth at the cost of, um, you know, controls, I suppose, particularly on house building, um, with a, a, a presumption that planning and building regs are, are preventing more homes and buildings from being built, which is, I haven't seen any evidence to validate that. Um, and we're seeing potentially a reversal on, you know, really key policy commitments that um, the, the previous administration had, had put in place, whether that's biodiversity net gain, um, you know, policies or um, future home standard or, or what have you. So um, we are facing quite a big challenge in terms of um, the tearing up, I suppose, uh, of, of a lot of those more progressive policies, all with the backdrop that actually the policy framework for the built environment and for buildings is severely lacking the current policy framework. And this is uh, very much evidenced and supported by the Committee on Climate Change. You know, the current policy gap that exists means that we can only get to, say, 60% of the way to net zero carbon by 2050 for this sector. So we're already deficient. But if we start taking away that which is already there, then we're really in trouble. Um, So I think, you know, that is very precarious. On the flip side, I take some comfort from the fact that, you know, there were there were something like 140 members of the Conservative Environmental Network and there were only uh, just over 10, I think, of the, um, of the net zero scrutiny group. Um, so I think the balance of opinion in favour of our agenda is definitely in the right place. But there are still a few lone sort of voices that are campaigning against it and that are, that are powerful voices, right? They're currently sort of running the country. Yeah, wearing double-breasted suits, <laughs> um, sadly, um, not to pick on anyone in particular. But I think it's it's critical really to lean in, I think, is really what you're, what you're saying yeah. and not to look at the progress that you and others have made over the last decade, decades, and and say, well done, pat on the back, but really to say this is now a moment to, to double down on, yeah. on where we are. Yeah. With that in mind, I think I've, I've heard you talk about this concept of radical collaboration uh, before. Yeah. And what, tell us what that means and, and how that has a role to play in, in really tipping the scales back in our favor. It was a term that came out from COP26 last year in, in Glasgow a lot. It came up in lots and lots of different sessions, and it's been um, bandied around since then. And from, from 
my point of view or from our point of view, um, we have not got time. Time is not on our side. So we need to accelerate the cooperation and collaboration between lots of different entities. So that could mean a practical example, um, which is uh, you know currently very much in focus, is the net zero carbon building standard, which we're developing not as UKGBC, but actually there are eight organizations, UKGBC, Better Buildings Partnership, uh, RIBA, RICS, the Carbon Trust, BRE, etc., all collaborating to develop this standard. It's a bottom-up exercise in that th- that everyone agrees it's needed. Um, no one necessarily wants to own it. And we, therefore, are collaborating in a unique way because there isn't a rule book for this stuff um, to, to, to get it done. At the moment, it's being done in, out of goodwill by all those organizations and many hundreds of others that are putting forward people to sit on work groups and task groups and review groups and, and so on. So it's a huge and uncharted kind of exercise in collaborating across the sector. I also think we need to think of collaborations across different sectors. And some of the really interesting, um, you know, partnerships and collaborations are where an energy company like Octopus is teaming up with a home builder like Ilki and they're together doing something really quite innovative so that the the energy agreements for the home buyers and owners um, are baked in with renewables and um, with you know energy demand reduction um, services and, and so on and so forth. So those sorts of things are really exciting too, right? Um, we need to collaborate and think outside of our silos Um, But we absolutely haven't got time to keep reinventing wheels. So from UKGBC's perspective, a big part of our role is to share knowledge, learnings, accelerate people's learning journeys and uh, get some of this stuff out as quickly as possible so that everyone can learn from each other. And I think it's true uh, even between corporates, right? If you look at your membership base, you've got not only real estate practitioners and developers and architects, what you would think of, but you've got shopping mall operators, mm. grocery stores, Tesco. I mean, the list is long across many different industries. And are you seeing collaboration between and among the membership as well? And, and, and tell us a little bit about that. Everything we do, we try to get all of those different disciplines together so that it's multidisciplinary. I mean, this industry is renowned for its fragmentation. And, you know, that's one of the, probably the biggest barriers to achieving the sustainability improvements that we need. So everyone needs a common goal. And so most of what we do is is, is pan-industry and multidisciplinary. More recently, though, we have been getting swathes of our members together in subsectors because actually it's only when you really sort of are talking to your direct peers that you can really compare notes in terms of what challenges you have, what opportunities you've got and how you're overcoming them. So we're trying to do that both ways, peer to peer, as in, you know, real estate advisory agent to real estate advisory agent, but also um, across the supply chain so that your product manufacturers talking to your investors, talking to your developers, talking to your architects, you know, and I think we need to do that both ways, up and down the value chain and uh, and between the different players in a particular subsector. Otherwise, we're we're not going to get there fast enough. Yeah, and I think we consider this really to be part of an urban system. And you talk about supply chains and all these different actors that you just rattled off. There, there, there are dozens more. Yeah, it is a complicated industry with complicated problems to solve. And unless we get all the actors around a table and think about this in a systems-based approach, I, I think that we're we're going to be um, really treading water. Yeah. Uh, so we absolutely would agree with that. Um, I think this, th- there's too much thinking that's going on at the level of a, an individual asset 
which of course is important. We need to think about each and every one of our assets and think about how we, um, you know, decarbonize them and 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 get them to where they need to be. But we also need to think about how how people are going to get to that asset. Where are the people living that are you know benefiting from that asset? So we need to zoom out more than we currently do and think at the level of you know planning or urban design or uh, you know street escapes or um, it's it's all very well but you're limited as to what you can achieve on just one plot um, and so of course those major regeneration projects they offer the scale for us to think at the systems level which is really exciting but actually we need to do that at the you know village city town level as well um, and you know the, the, the planning system that we have and the planning frameworks that we have don't do that sufficiently well and they don't sort of start with a premise of net zero carbon they're they're more about where do we locate the development rather than how does the whole enable a net zero carbon economy I mean that's what I would say is important from a systems level thinking but we also can do that you're quite right at the level of bringing people together and them thinking more systemically together. So we will be kicking off a quite a big program of work next year at UKGBC, multi-year program of work to, to get members together to think at that more systemic level and to kind of zoom out of thinking projects, sites, portfolios, but really thinking well, what do we need to do as a sector as a whole. And I think it's hugely important, and I think these uh, organizations that bring together people with a common sense of purpose are, are incredibly valuable. So as you know, we here at For Partnership, we're a certified B Corporation, and I think that organization, that network as well, allows you in, in kind of a bit of safety and security because you're not giving away you know, state secrets to when I'm, when I'm talking to the CEO of Innocent Smoothies, I mean, we're not going to compete buying a building, but right. we can share a lot of learnings about our own journeys around how we found uh, challenges in our supply chains or what, how we might be thinking about uh, dealing with staff or personnel issues. So I, f- I find these organizations to be hugely, hugely powerful. Yeah. And I think purpose and even some of these issues around social and environmental responsibility, they tend to be connectors rather than being weaponized as competition sort of factors. So I think they provide a really good point of interest for different leaders to come together around. And we certainly find that in a lot of our leadership programs, you know, that personal and organizational purpose really connects people. And actually, there's often very strong similarities, even if in very different sectors, and people will often have very similar experiences and and, uh, legacies and and purpose statements. So I see those as actually really helpful for that radical collaboration rather than being divisive. Being optimistic for a second, if you take all that on on board and you look at all this radical collaboration and a willingness to change and, and innovate, optimistic about the the future what do you what do you what do you think are we in a golden age as some call, call it for for the built environment i def- i have to keep optimistic otherwise i don't think i'd carry on doing what i do so i am definitely a glass half full not half empty um i take my optimism from yes this this sort of accelerating pace of change but also you mentioned innovation you know the the one area that is booming is the sort of net zero carbon and um, circular economy sort of solutions. There are more and more uh, new ideas, new services, new products that are emerging to sort of meet the need of um, this this industry to achieve its you know the long term goals and vision, and that's really exciting. So that growth in ideas, innovation, and and sort of you know new solutions is very much a place of optimism. 
Um, I also think the green finance or sustainable finance, you know, there's been a boom there as well in the weight of capital that's kind of backing some of these um, ESG, environmental, social and governance type goals or outcomes. It's still a little bit wild west, to be fair, because everyone's sort of got slightly different criteria for what a green investment should look like or a green loan or what have you. But once we land some of these kind of standards and definitions, that's going to transform markets faster, I think, than regulation. Because that's really, you know, if the bulk of the capital that's out there backs some of these outcomes, we'll get there very fast. Um, So I think those two things make me optimistic um, that we're going to make progress soon on a much faster and uh, larger scale. That's brilliant. So maybe just building on that, and as we draw our conversation to to a close, I'm going to use my powers of magical teleportation. Excellent. And since this is called the forecast, uh, I'm going to I'm going to teleport you some years you choose into the future, and uh, and I want you to tell us what you what you see, what do our cities look like, what does the built environment look like, what does tomorrow's tomorrow uh, hold for you as you kind of close your close your eyes and imagine that that future. It's a brilliant question. Um, Well, I can describe what I'd like it to look like. Um, It would be uh, very, very green. So I think we need way more uh, natural, you know, infrastructure and uh, and green spaces in our urban uh, environments, and that brings health, well-being, and um, and all sorts of other benefits to the people that use them. Um, So people-centric places would very much be a good description of what I'd like that to be. Um, places that, you know, connect people and make people feel good about, you know, connecting with each other, but good about the, the, the spaces that they're in, feel healthy and well and enjoyable, you know, and, and all of those things. Of course, I'd like them to be places where, you know, buildings are being repurposed, redesigned, reused. Um, there's much less new construction or, or even demolition, dare I say it, but there's there's a constant renewal process going on. Um, and, uh, you, you know, materials and products are being reused as much as buildings and spaces. And they would be um, accessible via very sustainable forms of transport, cycling, walking, you know, all things that make people feel well and, and happy. And they'd be clean. Great. Well, I look forward to joining you there. Julie, <laughs> thanks so much for joining me on The Forecast. You're an absolute legend. You've been a pillar of transformation. Uh, I think the industry owes you a real debt of gratitude. So thank you for joining me uh, today. And uh, for our listeners who want to find out more about the topics we've discussed and learn more about the UK GBC, where can they go? UKGBC.org. That's an easy one. Yeah. Julie, thanks a lot. Thank you. Thanks, Basil. The Forecast has been brought to you by Four Partnership. We are a purpose-driven real estate investment firm that proves you can do well by doing right. Subscribe to the 4Partnership newsletter at 4Partnership.com for more insight and opinion.